Hello and welcome to episode 48 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And I'm Anders Furs. And for this episode, we'll be opening the Cultural Capital Film Diary. I'll be covering the films Breath and Tully and sharing a chat about Avengers Infinity War. We'll also be counting down our top three noirs of the 21st century. And first, the film that's inspiring that list, the Melbourneian film noir, Trench. Another chilly Melbourne night, another case to crack. The name's Sam Slade, Private Eye. Well, I'm sorry, Sam Slade. Philippa Marlowe's already on the case. So I've probably left a few things out. Let's backtrack a bit. Sam Slade, everybody, give it up for uh, Sam Slade. Well, what do you do for a living, sir? I'm a comedian. What the fuck do you do? <laughs> <laughs> Officially worse than arson. Having written on this site for a little while now, I've gotten all too used to the crazy coming from the other side. What I'm not used to is the crazy coming to my door. With things taking a walk around my sealed apartment, then there's the frequent furry visitor with an act for slipping in at all hours. Let a girl know she's not alone before I do something mad, like hire a private detective. Written by Perry Cummings and Paul Anthony Nelson and directed by Nelson in his feature-length debut, Trench is a Melbourne-made, noir-inspired crime comedy about Sam Slade, played by Samantha Hill, a failed stand-up comedian who takes on her first case as a private eye when popular newspaper columnist Becky Holt, played by writer Perry Cummings, writes about a strange occurrence in her life. Part fangirl and part enthusiastic detective, Sam Slade befriends Becky and begins a thorough investigation involving a slew of her peers and enemies. After a quite sharp process of elimination, Sam provides Becky with her verdict. And while it doesn't quite go to plan, her skills as a private eye are well and truly proven, clearly influenced by a history of Hollywood film noir and centuries of classic literature. Trench is an extremely tight film, part romp and part anxious drama that is a must-see for any fan of the genre. Anders, what do you have to say about Trench? Um, I thought this was a witty and quite clever black and white noir portrait of our city. It's such a fun and engaging way to envision or re-envision Melbourne. So I do recommend, you know, all Melbournians um, who are interested in cinema go, go along to a screening. We'll talk about screening details later. Um, because it is an interesting, you know, reimagining of our city, the way that New York or LA or, you know, other cities have been explored thousands of times um at the heart of it uh, in this style and at the heart of it i found anyway is this hilarious performance from samantha hill um and i really do want to just identify how good she is she's so great like she's confident she's playful she's witty um it's such a wonderful performance um and she plays, yes, this Samantha Spade, um, this sort of broke comedian. Slade. Slade. I That's say. the joke. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving away the joke. Um, uh, and she puts on a stranger's trench coat and seemingly sort of transforms instantly into this private eye character. Um, and the way that that sort of happens is this sort of hilarious cafe scene where she sort of uses her very good... Um, eye for character, uh, eye for psychology, I guess, of other people um, to con her way into getting a cheap coffee. Um, it's just, uh, and anyway, her performance in that whole scene, I thought really was went won me over. I watched that and I was like, yep, you know exactly what you're doing. And I'm, I'm, she's in most of the film and I think she's a really strong part of its success. Yeah, I totally agree. I really, really liked her. I really liked all the actors, I thought, across well, yes, the board. exactly. Yep. Were fantastic in this. I was really surprised. I was going into this expecting to be a bit Pomerantz about it. And quite, you know, kind before I even see anything because I want to support the local industry. Didn't even need to be. It was really, really entertaining. I think they totally achieved what they wanted to. I thought there was the visual style was really, really striking. It makes me wonder why more people don't just be that brave and that distinctive. There was acres of black space on the screen in this, re like particularly in the early scenes. And it was just really, really masterfully lit. It was an excellent use of like low budget. Yeah, think, absolutely. You know, as absolutely. per the original film noir, you know. Films, yeah, I um, interviewed Perry and Paul and I'm really, really sad to say that the microphone didn't work because I am not really very good with technology. Um, but I did ask Paul because Paul was a cinematographer as well and I asked him about the black uh, the black and white and just these really, really rich blacks. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah which yeah. was so brilliant and I said – I haven't seen a lot of digital filmmaking that can actually get 
blacks to look that black um, and the contrast to be so great, which is something that I really, really miss about black and white filmmaking in the digital age. And so I asked him what in particular he'd done and he mentioned that he'd used this particular camera that just worked really, really well. But as you said, Andy, it was, you know, a low budget film, um, very low budget and very intimately done. He, you know, was very, I guess, kind of happy to hear that we had responded to the film in that way, that it had just been so kind of starkly black and white and captured that visual um, richness of the old era so well. And I really liked how he put a sort of contemporary twist on these noir visual cues. I kept on thinking particularly um, these scenes where there's these Skype conversations and just the bright white of the Apple logo on the mm. back of um, Becky Holt's uh, MacBook. I just thought that were, they were just like these really interesting. Look. And in fact, those Skype conversations too were an interesting interesting motif in the film. Um, and there was some really clever editing where the sort of noise of the Skype hanging up noise was like match cut to the subtitle coming up on screen saying hours earlier or something. It just sort of popped up on screen at the same time as that noise. So it was a really clever sort of um, use of those contemporary um, distinctive features added to the mix, I think. Yeah, that's true. Um, but it still kind of recalled, you know, a lot of older, you know, 1940s, 1950s type of culture, you know, just like the dark bar um, where locals, you know, kind of hang out and everyone and knows each other and you talk to yes. the bartender, you know, this kind of thing, which in such a big city now doesn't, we don't seem to really think of as an essential part of, of city living. Actually, the bars were really interesting in this film and I really liked how particularly that first, she visits a few, but the first bar um, when she you know, she has this sort of disastrous comedy performance and she leaves and she's like, okay, I'm going to quit. Anyway, that um, it was really interesting how it sort of took that idea of the bar and transplanted it to like this sort of Melbourne fringe kind of arts uh, space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I thought that was really cool. I really liked the, I mean, you mentioned the editing already, Anders, but I really liked, you know, I thought the editing was very great and that the, the the comedy kind of came through not only in the script writing and not only in the performances, particularly Sam Hills, but also some of the other characters um, were, were very funny. But the the editing and the use of canted angles and off-kilter framing, which is very noir, wasn't overdone and it was it never seemed as though that it was just for the sake of it, but everything mm. seemed really driven in order to get the right angle and nothing was held for too long. So with shot duration and editing rhythm, they all worked and balanced out and had this particular humour, um, but also made it just very watchable. You were never thinking like, why is this on an angle? What am I meant to be thinking? You know, it, was, it never seemed foreign to the film itself. And that was wonderful, I thought. Yeah, there was a creativity here that I thought was really missing from a lot of films that are prefaced with the fact that they're low budget. Because often low budget films, you know, we've said, we saw some others last year and we talked about them, and they were, you know, they were they were had a lot of great ideas and stuff. But there's a visual inventiveness here and a care taken with every shot, with every lighting, with all the acting, with every edit. I felt like they were really knew what they were doing and they had a very clear picture in their mind. And that's why I think it came comes as such a success. And I think the main problem is just going to be finding an audience, like getting more screenings, getting more people to go and see it and to take it seriously because. I mean, it's a difficult thing to market because you're pushing the genre out, mm. out ahead and I'm worried that people are going to see it and go, do I want to see a satire about noir? No, not really. But it's way more than that. There's it's so much more than yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. The, the yeah. way that it kind of appears is that, oh, you're like, oh, it could be terrible. Yeah, <laughs> it could yeah. be one of those films that's trying to show up a whole lot of genres and access something that no longer exists but just fails. But it's so not. It's so fresh and so new. And I just have to say that I'm friends with Paul and Perry, so I do know them. So even though I um, am filled with praise for their film, it's not only because they're friends of mine, <laughs> but I do know that Paul is like so into his film history. You know, he's not just kind of – he hasn't just seen Double Indemnity and he's like, oh, my God, I want to make that film. You know, yeah, it's very, yeah, yeah. very rich and he does take so much care. Even though it's a low budget, you can tell that there's so much of himself and his intimacy um, with film history in there mm -hmm. and Perry as well um, she said to me that she's kind of the literary the literature nerd 
of the two of them. And so Paul, all of the stuff from, from film history is from Paul and all of the stuff yeah, right. that's about, you know, books are all um, to do with Perry and she puts those influences <laughs> yeah, okay. in there. And that's yeah. really great. You know, you can kind of get a lot of fun from both directions in mm. this film from there. Yeah, and there, there is a real warmth to the genre, I think, in the film. It's not you're, – you're right. It's not um, these filmmakers going, oh, you know, let's make fun of an outdated way of making movies. Um, yeah. Which is – which can sometimes happen in a sort of pastiche or when you're aping style. Um, uh, the other thing I just wanted to highlight too was the sort of witty dialogue, which has all sort of got these Melbourne references littered throughout, and I, I laughed out loud at – well, several points, but at one point <laughs> there's this men's rights activist who um, character who tells his wife, we, we sort of discovered that he's got a wife, and he's on the phone to her and um, he goes, oh, I'll be home fast and you can say Monash Freeway. Yeah. And it was just like this odd moment, of, oh, the Monash Freeway, I know what that is, I get it. <laughs> yeah, and it takes like bloody forever to get anywhere on it. Like that's yeah, also exactly. what's hilarious, you exactly. know. So, yeah, so it's full of these little, yeah, these little jokey references that, uh, you know, treat Melbourne with the respect that LA has been treated for centuries. Which yeah, I really that was cool. a really nice change too. And it wasn't done in a way that would just appeal to Melbourne audiences either. I don't think. No, I'm what this did, it. you know, and we will talk more about neo-noirs later and, you know, noir as a whole when we get to our top threes. But, um, you know, noir is kind of this setting where a, a city, it can be like a city can be so important, so specific in noir, but also just very anonymous and quite general and mm. unidentifiable, yeah. you know, in its in its yeah. close-ups. And there are a lot of kind of, you know, local framing here, not so much of in the skyline and whatnot. Mm. So it, even though it does have the, these jokes, these Melbourne local jokes, that it is also, you know, kind of fitting into this noir template. Yeah, it really was a very strong film. Um, I also really loved some of the performances, even the very small parts. Mm. I thought, this is such a well-cast film, I thought. When you've got a wealth of talent. And also, I didn't, hadn't seen anybody. I don't know any of these people involved in the making of this film or any of the actors, which I was kind of surprised by. You mentioned that you really liked the woman who played the politician. Yeah. She was on one of the, not Miss Fisher's... Dr. Blake? Dr. Blake, oh, right. yeah. You know, she's kind of done a lot of television and a lot of the other actors are all come from theatre. Yeah, that's um, what I was thinking because there was a scene in La Mama, I think. Oh, right. So maybe they were associated with that theatre, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed Dave Lamb's performance. He plays the the friend, the friendly yes. neighbour who's like slightly queer and always drunk, um, yeah. who's yeah, always yeah. kind of leering in the doorway, but he's very friendly and kind of plays this great noir character who reminded me a lot of Vincent Price. In Laura particularly, and um, I did say that to Paul and Perry and they, they thought that was great, that he didn't reminded me of, of Vincent Price, who's such an essential yeah. kind of noir yeah. type. And it was interesting because his makeup was the only time I was like, oh, makeup. Because like, everyone else looked fairly neutral and fairly well done, but he was like, it was like they put makeup on just for the <laughs> black and white, knowing it was going to be shot in black and white. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. It was all it was all very well done. Yeah, nothing was washed out. So many black and white films these days. It's just yeah, like no, a no, slate no. of like, not even grey, but just yeah. blah. Yeah, this was brilliant. I thought. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, thumbs up from everybody here. I think. Yeah, Absolutely. totally. So where is it screening, Andy? Well, um, you'll find it screening on May 17 at the Lido Cinema. Uh, you can get tickets to that or you can find out more about the film at trenchfilmnoir.com. You can. And also just as a little bonus for our listeners who might be disappointed by the fact that my interview didn't work, there is a tiny snippet that worked. I have one question that I caught on a different recording device. Um, so if you have seen the film already, I do recommend that you don't listen to this if you haven't because there's a slight spoiler. Um, that will, It's not really a spoiler, but it will just kind of ruin your enjoyment of the film, maybe that <laughs> particular moment. Then listen in to the next question that I when I speak with Paul Anthony Nelson and Perry Cummings. I have one last question and it's a little silly and just for our listeners to know it's a bit of a spoiler um, but hopefully everyone's can see this film already. Anyway, um, what was it like and did you feel a little bit dirty putting Virginia Woolf's suicide note on a mobile phone? <laughs> I, I love Virginia Woolf. A lot of the um, literary references and quotes come from things that I absolutely adore. And she's I thought, the literary nerd. Yeah, and I thought that that was the highest insult that they could do to my literary character was use Virginia Woolf's words. 
and um, it said a lot about appropriation for us. I think that um, even there's there's a lot to do with um, literature and appropriation and using things for um, your own benefit without really understanding them. And I think that Paulie and I very much believe that if you're going to use something, you really need to understand where it was, comes from and the intention that it was written with and so forth. So if you felt insulted about that, that's great. That's what we wanted. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say I felt insulted, but I was just like, oh, I don't think that's exactly where it belongs, which yeah. is like yeah. exactly what, you know, that film is, try- your film is trying to do or you're trying to say about the um, Dave Lamb character. Yeah. Um, in that case. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> and it's also, I mean, if we're getting into spoiler territory, his character is the personification of white, privilege, uh, white male privilege. So his, everything about him is it's appropriating what he needs to get by whatever time for his own use. And everything is kind of, you know, from, you know, that sort of unthreatening kind of identity to, oh, this apartment's mine, I deserve it, to... Yeah, and and so so that appropriating that language in order to use to fake her suicide is just seems like a natural thing to him, and it's that thing. It's appropriating appropriating something without really understanding, and and perverting it. Um, well, that's a great answer, and I think it really fits with the film and with the characters. But if you're like thinking about your own appropriation, then what you've done is totally like fit into a genre that you completely understand, obviously. Um, and so, really well done on the film. Thanks again for coming to speak to me. Um, but you've added to this genre that you love so much. So, congrats. That's awesome. Thank you so much for saying that's exactly what we uh, what we wanted. You know, it's like that that sort of thing of. When you um, when you write something, it's kind of like you hope people get it. But then on the flip side of that, you hope that you show that you get it to the people like you, Eloise, that really understand these kind of genres. And it's and yeah, hearing you say that is awesome. and yeah, it's really lovely. There was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people to see if we could become something more. So when they needed us, we could fight the battles that they never could. The Marvel comic universe is a world that rewards you the more you have invested in it. And by now, a lot of people have a lot invested in this film series. The Avengers are a team of superheroes and their allies who have continued to protect Earth from threats that can't be managed by any one superhero alone, and the new danger they face in Avengers Infinity War is bigger than any yet imagined. Thanos is a renowned despot and he's seeking to exert his own form of justice by annihilating half of the people in the universe. By doing this, he argues, those remaining will have access to a more just amount of resources, there'll be less pain and suffering. He intends to do this by gathering all six Infinity Stones, artefacts that have become charged with immense powers when the universe was created. With this, he can destroy half of all life with a click of his fingers. We've had glimpses of Thanos in previous films, and in those films, he killed people who returned to life only to be killed by him again. And without spoiling anything, this is one of the main problems with Avengers Infinity War and in fact the entire Marvel comic universe. Death, life, victors and losers in battle, it all feels very arbitrary. There are no consequences to anything here. The franchise is now so vast and so profitable, so all-consuming, that you feel there are too many external pressures keeping this thing going. Having said that, Avengers Infinity War is surprisingly comprehensible, and the Russo brothers have done an admirable job of juggling 30-odd characters and keeping the story focused on Thanos' quest. Unlike a lot of villains in blockbuster CGI-heavy superhero films, Thanos is invested with pathos. He gets a family and a backstory, and you can actually argue that his vision for the universe does make sense in a utilitarian way. It's a way reminiscent of Watchmen and the TV series Leftovers, and is inarguably done better there. It's entertaining, it's supremely well constructed, and will probably be nominated for visual effects Oscars. There's also some impressive editing that keeps it running at a surprisingly tight two and a half hours. But if you aren't at least passingly familiar with the previous 18 films, I'll say that again, 18 films, then you might not get a lot out of the emotional scenes that were absolutely wrecking a lot of the fanboys sitting around me when I saw this at the Melbourne premiere. Even with its by now trademark post credit scene that hints at the next major instalment to come in 2019. Still, I am looking forward to Ant Man and the Wasp, the next Marvel franchise, due in July, but not as much as Anders. Mm-hmm.
I'm Telly. I'm here to take care of you. I'm just not used to people doing things for me. I hold a baby all day, and then nighttime rolls around, and I'm supposed to just switch gears. Like, hello, I'm all sexy now. You're empty. Yeah. No, you're empty on this side. <sighs> Charlize Theron, director Jason Reitman and writer Diablo Cody first combined their powers in 2011 for the film Young Adult, and seven years on they've reunited for the drama Tully. Theron plays Marlo, a mother who is married to Drew, played by Ron Livingston, with whom she has a daughter and a son who is exhibiting behavioural disorders. Marlo is heavily pregnant with her third child and daunted by the prospect of becoming a mother again. As a favour, her much wealthier brother Craig, played by Mark Duplass, offers to pay for a night nanny to help her get some sleep. The nanny, Tully, played by a live wire, Mackenzie Davis, turns out to be a transformational addition to Marlo's life. Tully and Marlo instantly have a powerful connection, and her patience and ability to preempt Marlo's needs changes her from a constantly exhausted and anxious mother into one who fulfills the duties she sees being exhibited by successful mothers. Diablo Cody, best known for the Academy Award she won for writing the 2007 film Juno, is now a mother of three and has always been a writer drawn to complex female characters who hide internal struggles while fulfilling their social roles. Tully might be the film where her skills are most obvious and her interests most deftly explored. In playing Marlowe, Theron has undergone an incredible transformation from action film star, as she was in last year's Cold War thriller Atomic Blonde, to an overwhelmed, stressed-out mother, and her gradual shift under Tully's influence is wonderfully rendered. There's one scene in which Marlowe and Tully decide to drive into New York City to visit Marlowe's old neighbourhood in Brooklyn, and... As with several points in this film, Reitman chooses to use a montage. As we get closer to the city, we jump sequentially track by track through the album Shoe So Unusual by Cindy Lauper. It's a very simple and very effective trick. Tully tackles an unusual subject with a deep affection for its characters who are allowed to just be and to subtly reveal themselves in an almost Altman-esque manner that I don't know if it really needed the twist in the tale that would likely dominate the discussion of this film. It's low-key and modest in its ambitions, and Cody's screenplay seems to me, at least, powerful in its evocation of motherhood, and Theron is perfectly cast in the leading role. Tully really feels like the sort of mid-budget indie film that isn't made very often anymore, and there should be more films exploring real-life tensions with intelligence and warmth like this, making their way into cinemas. Recommended. Serves out one day. You dare me? I dare you to dare me. What do you reckon? Hippies. That's what I reckon. Boys take a wrong turn. I could tell she liked me. What? She'd look at me with that special look. <laughs> How does it feel when it's that serious? It's not about the thoughts in your head, it's about surrender. Surrender is what frees you up to be completely in the moment. To commit with your body and your soul, not a shred of doubt. You're different, Michael. You got this look. Like you're expecting to lose something. Fear's only natural, mate. People face down fears every day. Daring to try, that's mankind for you. Since it was first published in 2008, Tim Winton's novel Breath holds a very special place on the shelves of thousands of Australians. Winton is known for exploring the relationship between the sensitive and physical Australian male and the landscape, usually the land and the sea of southwestern Western Australia. Breath is set in the mid-70s in the town of Sawyer and its nearby coast. Bruce Pike, known as Pikelet, and Ivan Loon, known as Looney, are two teenage best friends. Looney is known for engaging in risky fun, which Pikelet goes along with. When they discover surfing, something deeper is switched on in them and they both become obsessed. One day, while surfing, they meet a former pro surfer named Sando, played by director Simon Baker, who sells them surfboards and then takes them out on more challenging and reckless surfing adventures, pushing their courage. The latter part of the film explores the relationship between Pikelet and Sando's wife Eva, played by Elizabeth Debicki. Breath explores the nature of fear and why people, usually men, will risk their lives in the name of sport or fun. Breath has been criticised already for offering little to audiences who aren't middle-aged white straight men, and I think that's a bit unfair. Baker has clearly been pretty faithful in bringing Winton's novel to the screen, and he shows a really strong affinity for the friendship between Pikelet, played by Samson Holt, and Looney, played by Ben Spence, both first-time actors but long-time surfers, 
and they deliver extremely strong performances. In fact, they seem to physically develop an age and shift as the film progresses. Only Elizabeth Debicki's character feels underdeveloped and her motivations thin and more there to advance the narrative, despite having talent to spare. We'll see her next in Steve McQueen's follow-up to 12 Years a Slave, the comedy action thriller Widows, due out later this year. Breath effectively captures Winter's novel with sterling work from cinematographers Martin Dean and Ricky Rufiki, but it's Baker who has marshaled this project and it's a powerful calling card that I think will be a very successful film. Which brings us to this week's Cultural Capital Film Diary. The Human Rights at Arts and Film Festival is running at ACME until May 17. Highlights include the documentary Another News Story about the media's coverage of the European refugee crisis and Best Documentary Oscar nominee The Last Man in Aleppo. The American Essentials Film Festival runs from May 10 to 20 and collects new release indie films including Kevin Connolly's Gotti in which John Travolta plays John Teflon Don Gotti, Sam Hoffman's Humor Me starring Jermaine Clement and Elliot Gould, Anders Walter's coming-of-age fantasy I Kill Giants and a double bill of two of the strongest films about African-American politics and black power, Watt Stacks and Killer of Sheep. Speaking of double bills, The Astro is showcasing some dynamite 80s pop feminism with 9 to 5 and Working Girl on May 9. The following night sees a screening of 35mm versions of Alejandro Jodorowsky's El Topo and The Holy Mountain. And finally, the St Kilda Film Festival runs from May 17 to 26 and is showcasing some of the country's best short films. Excuse me, sir. I'm looking for a job. I'm a hard worker. I set high goals. My motto is, if you want to win the lottery, you have to make the money to buy a ticket. So what do you say? I could start tomorrow, or even why not tonight? No, I'm not hiring. Which brings us now to our top three noirs of the 21st century. Um, Can I just first of all ask everybody what they think makes a film noir or neo-noir? I... You know um, about these things. ...will... Just trawl out James Naramore's comment, which is that film noir might be hard to define, but I know one when I see one. Mm. Do we all agree that that's a good, you know, good way yeah. to kind of yeah. categorize it? Because even when I was researching this and looking around to see what other people were saying, it was just a humongous range. Anything to do with crime slash thriller seemed to be able to be nudged into the, the neo noir category. Yeah, and I really disagree with that. Mm. Um, you know, it's it, it that is kind of where it comes from, but it's not simply that. There's a whole lot of crime films, even in the forties, that aren't noir um, for whatever reason. So yeah, it is a slippery thing. Yeah, but how do you differentiate it personally? Because you've written a bit about noir. Yeah, I've written a lot on noir. Um, and I think of it in the same way that Raymond Dergnat identified it in the 1970s, which is not as a genre but as a, like a mode, as, as definable by its tone right. and by some motif, whether it's visual or stylistic or mm. character motif, um, rather than it being simply like a genre, like a Western or a sci-fi or whatever. Right, okay. So some of those, I mean, some of those things are, you know, a heavy contrast of shadow and light, close framing with like a lot of darkness in the background kind of thing, a sense, a heavy, heavy sense of despair or unknown, um, unknowability defined by trauma as well. I think also, and we'll get to this in my top threes, that it needs to be something that comes from a broad, either global or domestic spatial trauma in some way on kind of a world scale. Sorry, spatial trauma? Like this or spatially located trauma. Oh right. Okay. I suppose. Okay. Um so Space was being traumatized yeah. Can't just be like a crime film where I don't know, someone murders someone for any old reason. Like it has to be there has to be something more to it. What if they murder somebody and that somebody has a wife who's in despair? Does it become a noir then? Like is there a fantasy? <laughs> is that enough to make a film? Noir? Yeah, look, it's really interesting because you can pick and choose and people might think that I'm just being wishy washy. But you know, if it has like seven of the ten things, then does that make <laughs> yeah. it noir? But if it has a different six of the ten, then maybe it's not quite noir. I don't right, know. Right, okay. Maybe so neo noir means you can play around with this a bit? No, I mean even in noir you can kind of play around with it. Ah. Okay. Right. But noir wasn't really a term. It's sort of a retrospective. Yeah, I mean, designation, isn't it? Yeah, so it didn't really it become is, a term yeah. until the 1970s. It was a genre that was sort of applied, yeah, partly retroactively. But um, that's reassuring to hear you say that stuff because I would take a similar view that noir is a state of mind. <laughs> uh, it's all about the attitude, and yeah, that sense of dread for me, a lack of options. Your, your, yeah, yeah okay. entrapment. Your, 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 yeah, mm. entrapment. 
um, and and within an urban setting. But I mean, so hang on, we can did, debate all of this. I don't know if I felt, that's very debatable, Anders. Yeah, I don't know if I felt dread watching Trench. Does that mean I? It's not a noir for me, but it might be for other people. Well, it's a comedy noir. So yeah. it's definitely not doing those things. But if you did go into Becky's perspective, then yeah, you would think there's funny. an incredible sense of dread. And her dread is partly, you know, psychological. It's not real. That it does it comes from her entrapment in her apartment. So these mm. tight spaces and all of that. So mm. but you know, it is a comedy noir, so it does get to skirt skirt yeah, those a right. little so I don't think we've really answered the question, but uh, well, I, you can't. It's such an interesting topic for that it reason. Is interesting, yeah, it is mm. really interesting. Yes, and you're my favourite person to hear talk about it because you know more about it than anyone else I've met, I think. Oh, thank you, Andy. It's my favourite thing to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you want to start with your number three? Because I imagine you're going, to in, you're going to be describing noir a bit as you describe these films. I will a little, yeah, if you, if you really want me to. I'd love you to. My... Um, Number three is the first one that I mentioned I would be doing when Andy proposed this topic. I kind of, I bagged it from, from everyone. And I bagged this film because I actually wrote a book chapter about it in a book published last year called Urban Noir, New York and Los Angeles in Shadow and Light. So this is an edited book featuring a number of chapters um, on noir and neo-noir across those two cities and how the films films have been represented, how the cities have been represented in the films. Um, and so this film is Nightcrawler, Dan Gilroy's 2014 neo-noir. My chapter was largely on something that I've been very obsessed with for at least 10 years in classic noir, um, the police radio so this, I was looking at Los Angeles, obviously. Nightcrawler is filmed in Los Angeles. Looking at the police radio, historically, I kind of looked at Armored Car Robbery, He Walked By Night, The Killer Is Loose, um, and a few of those older noirs. And then I moved on to a couple of neo-noirs, but mostly talked about Nightcrawler um, and how it's exemplary of the neo-noir in Los Angeles that expands the city and its criminal trauma to what I think is further reaches of the city of LA than was covered in many early noirs. So for whatever reason, one of that, that being, um, you know, that a lot of these were kind of studio bound in some mm. ways. Although of course an attribute of noir was that a lot of them were filmed on location, that they were kind of located around the Hollywood, Beverly Hills, Bunker Hill area. Um, Nightcrawler by its very existence because it's about a guy who looks for crime in the city anywhere and he's got a really fast car so he can go anywhere, takes it really much further out of the city. So it's a spin on this vigilante criminal who jacks into the police alert system, the police radio system. And so as the audience, we hear all of these crimes from the perspective of a person who isn't there to solve them, but he's there to feed off them. Something really interesting that I find about noir as well is that you've got two angles. You've got like the police procedural where you're trying to solve crime or you've got the, you know, the other kind where you're actually kind of a criminal and you're looking at the city that way or looking at a rural space that way, although Anders might not agree with me. <laughs> but I, I don't know, it's a really interesting dynamic that plays with this concept of noir from that kind of rude idea of it being about a criminal in some way. I just, I also really like Nightcrawler stylistically. Like it's so, so interesting in its use of depth, darkness and light. And there are a few sequences that capture Los Angeles at magic hour. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That really are so is. distinctive. Yeah. But then... They're beautiful. You know, most of the sequences take place at night that systematically undo that magic of the magic hour mm. by kind of just showing up how dirty and gross and messy Los Angeles is. So worth yeah. seeing. Yeah, I absolutely love that film as well. It's one mm. of my standouts of the year. Um, but I just keep, whenever I think of that, I don't really think of it in the same sort of analytical way. <laughs> but you've obviously thought about it a lot. But I just think about how phenomenal Gyllenhaal was and how that casting which yes. is so spot on. We'll so spot on. Yeah. And Riz Ahmed is in it as yes. well. Yes, and he's, he's brilliant. brilliant too. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, that was the first time I s I'd seen him. Mm -hmm. I know he's in a lot and had been in a lot before that, but I thought, always thought he was American. <laughs> yeah, right. Anyway. Um, yeah, it was great. Really, really yeah, fantastic film and really gets into that city like almost no other film from the last decade, I can think. Well, following on from Nightcrawler, interestingly, I've randomly chosen top three that are all set in Los Angeles. So this is a um, common theme, which we may return to. But my number three film is, of course, Nicholas Winding Refn's Drive. Yes. Which I think is his second best movie. And in many ways, 
rather uninteresting, with, but with one very notable exception, um, which is why it's on this list. So uh, the movie follows this unnamed driver played by Ryan Gosling, who's a stunt driver by day and mixed up in the underworld at night. Kerry Mulligan plays this sort of pseudo-femme fatale character. But what I want to discuss here is it's nearly overwhelming evocation of a certain mood, sort of the endless scenes of uh, the driver driving with this sort of pseudo-80s synth music theme underscoring what he's doing. They sort of all blend together to create a listless and at the same time encroachingly paranoid mood, which gets back into what we were talking about in terms of the psychological attitude of the genre, if, if you can call it that. And so I think in its ability to evoke that feeling, the feeling that I would argue is at the very heart of the noir genre, I think that's why it deserves to be seen within this lens. And I rewatched it a couple of weeks ago and was really, again, struck by just how singular that um, sense of mood is in the film and also how good... Brian Cranston is in that too. He's an actor who I don't normally think of as good beyond Breaking Bad, but he's yeah he he plays a really interesting character. Yeah, it's top film. Really great mood throughout that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. He's good at that. He's Christina Hendricks. That mood thing. Great. Term. Oh yeah, she's great too. Mm. I agree. Awesome. I love that film and the yeah the music as you say, which is puts you in this really interesting space. Yeah. I, yeah sometimes I don't know and I'll listen to the soundtrack. Mm. And does weird things to me. <laughs> also, you know how Ryan Gosling chews a toothpick? Yes. <laughs> um, Sterling Hayden in a film from 1954 called Crime Wave also chewed a toothpick. Hey. Um, yeah. And I think that that means that they're connected somehow. Interesting. Um, cool. it's, yeah. Also a Los Angeles noir. Yeah, cool. Um, and he plays, well, you know, I mean, it's Sterling Hayden. Sterling Hayden, Ryan Gosling put them next to each other. Yeah, Why not? No, I do, don't you, do you remember when that came out? It was almost being in, in danger of being just completely overwhelmed by its own height. Because yes. there was so much just like oh, Gosling, yes. Gosling, Gosling. Well, he the, saved that, he, that British tourist from being... stuff I can and yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a huge high wave. And then really interesting that he followed that up with Only God Forgives, um, which uh, had far less of an impact. Yes. But I find a very interesting film. Much in the same way that Gilroy's follow-up, Raymond J.R. Squire... I'm so keen to see oh, it. Has gotten dire but it reviews. Just, it has. <laughs> it it kind of flopped. Movie. Yeah. Well, as really in excited. it flopped, as in it screened to no hurrah at all, and hasn't has even screened even in Australia. Released? Yeah, hasn't even got a release. No. Bizarre. Interesting. It's given it's Oscar nominated. Anyway, well, weirdly, yes. my number three is also set in LA, hey. and it's not Neon Demon. <laughs> just as a heads up for our regular listeners. But it is uh, Inherent Vice, the 2014 film. Oh. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it's... I have I, seen it. I still have not seen it. It's a really difficult film to get your head around. It's very I hard really to explain the plot, it. but I will give it a crack. Do it. Okay, so it's an adaptation of a Thomas Pynchon novel, um, who is not known well, as... Well, there's the your problem. Most, exactly, not known <laughs> as the most easy author to adapt. Um, and Paul Thomas Anderson is not somebody that I'm a slavish fan of. I don't think everything he's done is great, and um, even though you know, I'm a big fan of a lot of his work. But uh, he has made this career out of these having these really interesting sort of quirky, unusual films that don't seem to have that much in common with each other. But it's set in 1970 and Joaquin Phoenix plays Doc Sportello, who's a private investigator who has a pot problem and uh, is um, kind of consumed by affections that he's had for women in the past, one of whom, uh, played by Catherine Waterston, whose name is Shasta, turns up um, at his place one night and asks um, him to investigate her new boyfriend, um, who he, she's having an affair with, who's this real estate developer called Mickey Wolfman, whose wife wants to put him in a mental institution. And so Doc is not in the best place to actually take on this case, but he tries anyway, and straight away he's in way over his head. There's a humongous amount of overlapping plot developments and twists and tangents, and then there's comedy run, run through it. There's a really square cop played by Josh Brolin called Bigfoot, who's constantly hounding him all the way through the film who is quite patronising and racist, but in a sort of 70s way where it's kind of this mixture of that's quite offensive, but also that's kind of hilarious. And if you see it at the time, it's kind of funny, but at the moment it's kind of just weird and disconcerting. Um, Joaquin Phoenix's face is just perfect for this. I don't think anybody, any other actor could play confused and kind of a bit driven, but also really, really hung up and stoned um, at the same time. It goes on for ages. It's <laughs> lost money. It's really hard sell <laughs> now I come to think of it when I'm actually talking about it. But it does really kind of hit all the neo-noir buttons. Um, and I think it's, I found it really entertaining actually, the more I think about it and then the more I've, I looked into it the second time through, it actually was like 10 times the film I thought it was the first time and I quite liked it the first time. Inherent Vice, check it out people. 
If it's a quiet night out at the beach and your ex-old lady suddenly out of nowhere shows up with a story about her current billionaire land developer boyfriend and his wife and her boyfriend and a plot to kidnap the billionaire and throw him in a loony bin. I need your help, Doc. Maybe you should just look the other way. My number two is Balatar's 2007 film The Man from London. So I have only seen this once, I will admit to that. I saw it at the Melbourne International Film Festival when I was in the midst of writing my honours thesis on film noir. So I was completely absorbed in the atmosphere of these films from the 1940s and 50s at the time when I saw this. And this is filmed in black and white. This is a very dark film in more ways than one. But I remember very little of this film in regards to the plot. What I remember from this film is the atmosphere, some images and a feeling and sense of wonderment at experiencing what I was experiencing, which is two hours and 20 minutes of slow cinema that's kind of all noir and I loved it. So basically a number of the things that I recall are fog on a dark pier with a ship looming in the background, a woman walking with a briefcase, a small dinghy isolated on the ocean, a family cramped into a small living area shot from a low angle so that they seem trapped under the ceiling, outbursts of grief and anger in an otherwise sedate or restricted world and darkness that holds secrets and windows that promise light but don't help in revealing much. In doing some reading about this film as I was writing this little synopsis for the podcast, I read that Tar said it was important to him to kind of anonymise the locations filmed in London to anonymise it, this was a film where much that happened happened in darkness, but to anonymise it so that it showed events that could kind of happen anywhere and any time, so that people who watched it became overwhelmed with a sense of dread or at least potential dread that this could happen to them. The you know So typical of this style is that to be so oppressive that nowhere was safe at all. In general, this film is about a mysterious man Um, who witnesses a murder and then becomes embroiled in a life of criminality and implicated into things he doesn't want. So again, this sense of just like entrapment and despair. I think it's a phenomenal film and I'm so keen to see it again. I love Bellatar overall in general. I remember that when it came out, almost everyone else who I spoke to then and also since about The Man from London has nothing good to say about it. (laughs) Um, and I never understood why and I sort of thought, mm, am I wrong? But, I, the, you know, I think about this film constantly. Um, who knows why I haven't watched it again since if I do think about it constantly. Also Tilda Swinton's in it. Oh, hello. Um, okay. Just well, FYI. Come on, bury the lead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, nothing against Tilda Swinton but noir is up there for me. There you go. So I should, you know, we should make a party of it one night, cult cap pals. Okay, so is this a good place? Because I know, okay, if people know anything about Tar, they're going to know it's long and slow and his films take a while to get to their point. Is yep. this a good place to start? Mm, no, I don't think so. Because it is, even though it's not really concerned with genre or narrative, like it does maybe have more. I would absolutely say, not Satan Tango because it's seven hours long. Look, I would say The Turin Horse if you were going to. You know, start at the end. Why not? Mix it up a bit. Okay. Um, but then get into The Man from London. Right. Okay. Thanks. I'm there at that screening. I, there's something about anonymous urban spaces on screen that really is something that I engage with on a massive level. I don't know what it is. Anyway. Um, cool. <laughs> that's, that's on my list. Um, my number two is... Collateral, Michael Mann's 2004 film, which I have put on this list because I think it's a really interesting example of new technology being used in the service of genre. So um, it's held up to be, I think, the very first, one of the very first Hollywood pictures ever to be shot entirely digitally on a digital camera. Um, it may even be the first, um, and it takes place, and you can tell when you're watching it that it's it's shot digitally. Um, there is a bit of grain to some of it, which is really interesting. Um, anyway, so it takes place mostly inside this cab, uh, which Jamie Foxx's character is driving at night around LA, and he picks up Tom Cruise's character, and basically Cruise is playing this hitman who is going from hit to hit across the city. There's about five stops that he asks, um, 
for all night. Um, anyway, thanks for the use of this digital camera. We see what both what's inside the cab and what's outside it. And this is because the HD camera picks up far more light um, than a standard film camera would. So most notably, it picks up the palm trees in the background when they're driving around at night. And when I watched this, I was struck by the fact that, I mean, here's this, uh, Los Angeles palm trees are such a, an iconic image um, in film and popular culture, and they've been immortalised, you know, millions of times, but they're rarely depicted at night. So this was an interesting re-examination of a very, you know, almost hackneyed pop culture trope, I guess. So I think because he uses this new technology, he adds some texture to a sort of archetypical image in our cultural consciousness, which I think is a really cool thing for the film to do. That collapsing of the boundaries between the inside and outside, between the city and the cab, uh, Los Angeles and the uh, the increasingly desperate situation that's going on inside that taxi. I think it's really interesting and plays into very much what you were talking about, Eloise, with regards to Nightcrawler, I think, um, that idea of LA as this messy, dangerous, all-encompassing city. Um, it's a fantastic film. I really recommend people see it if they haven't. It's really interesting. Yeah, great choice. Yeah, and there, uh, also I think I've read somewhere that um, there's sort of this motif of coyotes in the film filmed at night, which I think they just filmed impulsively because they happened to be there and that they didn't have to spend any time, you know, setting up big film cameras. So it's another example of how technology is changing what we see on screen. Cool. Yeah, yeah. good selection. Um, my number two is is like my last film, also from twenty fourteen, and this but this is a Chinese neo noir called Black Coal Thin Ice that played at <gasps> MIF. Did you see this? Yes. Yeah. So good. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. So it's uh, directed by a guy called Dio Yunnan, whose next film I'm seeing next week. That can. Oh. That can. I'm very oh, excited. Oh, yeah, What's that, Andy? Yeah. I can't remember the name of it. Where are you going? The Cannes Film Festival. <laughs> so, listeners, um, this is kind of a weird place to drop it in, but yeah, next week <laughs> I'll send an audio missive from the Cannes Film Festival and let you know what I've caught up with there and who I've spoken to and who you might be able to listen to me speaking to. Anyway, back to Black Hole Thin Ice. It's uh, known by in China as its name as Daylight Fireworks, um, which makes sense if you see the closing scenes of this film. RDO won the Golden Bear at the Venice Film Festival for this. Um, it's about a guy called Detective Zhang, Zhang played by Liao Fan who's um, assigned to investigate a case where dismembered parts of a body keep turning up in different cities across the northeast of China. And they identify the body um, eventually and then establish some suspects. And Zhang and his partner Wang uh, return the ashes to his widow called Wu, who's played by Guai Lunmi, who works at a laundromat. And from there, as with lots and lots of neo-noirs, the plot gets really complex and the as the characterization gets richer and you start to see this relationship between Zhang and Wu and the, all these questions start going around as they start having these feelings for each other as to you know, how this person died and what he's been involved with. And so there's all these reductionist urges going on at the same time where he's trying to get to the end of this case and get to the bottom of it. And then there's all these conflicting emotions going on and it's rendered so beautifully in this because there's a lot of snow, there's a lot of tense scenes involving um, ice skates and uh, some really good twists that I certainly didn't see coming, particularly because um, Zhang, unlike a lot of... Actually, no, I suppose like a lot of neonatal detectives is traumatised by working on the case. He starts getting this sort of PTSD because he's pretty grisly. Mm. Um, one of his you know, um, partners is killed partway through. And so it's quite got this kind of ba nice balance of realism. And plus you're seeing parts of other cities in northeast China that you don't usually get to see. There's something about the wintry industrialness that like, kind of like you were saying about palm trees at night time. It just kind of has this amazing atmosphere and it lends a lot. Mm. But would you say that it is an... Um a film that straddles both urban and rural noir. Yeah, it's, hang on, talk to me about rural noir. How is that different? Apart well, from, it's, it's just the setting. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, basically. Then it would, yeah, I mean, sure. same feeling, but you know, you don't need to rely on uh, built-up areas or yes, you know, yeah. actual physical claustrophobia. The claustrophobia comes from wide-open spaces where there's no escape. You know, mm. so you know, you mention a lot of snow, and that's a, a great part of like a lot of uh, rural noirs from the forties and fifties. Yeah, or even later films like Insomnia has a really nice mood going with yeah. snow and ten building tension. Yeah, yeah anyway, so I just wanted yeah. to, you know, ask if a film's doing both of those things and using yes. both of those yeah, yeah. kind of um, formats, then that's great. Particularly because it's like black coal and ice. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. 
You friends with Savory? Do I know you? Detective Malloy. There was a homicide last Saturday. The deceased was seen in a red turtle the same night that you were there. You don't remember anything, didn't see anything, didn't hear anything. I don't remember seeing or hearing anything unusual. Figure out remember anything. Give me a call, all right? Detective, good looking. I was wondering if you want to go for a beer or something. You gotta go. Just for the exercise, you should go. You want me to romance you, take you to a classy restaurant, no problem. You want me to be a best friend, no problem. I could be whatever you want me to be. My number one is Jane Campion's 2003 film, In the Cut. Whoa, okay. Did not say that coming. Cool. Yeah, so this may not be considered a noir by everyone, but listen up. I'm about to explain why <laughs> it might be. So this is about Franny Avery, a writer and English teacher played by Meg Ryan and the cop who she fears but is also drawn to in this kind of weird situation of having complex sexual states and a desire for danger um, played by Mark Ruffalo. That's a very noir thing. Um, and also this is about Franny's sister Pauline played by Jennifer Jason Lee. It's important because Jennifer Jason Lee is excellent and always needs to be mentioned. While this is not exactly and in every way recalling noir, I think that in some ways, particularly in its production, which comes from a very specific geographical and political trauma, it is a noir. So this was the first film to begin shooting in Manhattan after 9-11. So it came from a time of uncertainty, instability, pain manifest in a population and also in a city. So the pain is visible and sensible within the urban fabric, the skyline, the ground, as well as in its its population. The promotional poster shows a man's hand adjusting a rear view mirror framing Meg Ryan. And in that way, that associates it with like voyeurism and noir that was often channeled through moving or still vehicles, deflecting the gaze through a mirror. So in that sense, I consider it very much part of this whole noir movement that began in mm, Europe after World War One and in America after before and surrounding World War Two in that way, which is really key. I think also it does very well in capturing and affecting that sort of dark, blurry, disorienting nature of a city <clears throat> defined both by chaos and inertia. Um, the cinematography is by Dion Beebe. It's really beautiful and also brutal. Um, and in that sense, it's it's very, very, you know, I mean, it's colour, but it's very noir. I also think this might be a little twee um, of me, but the Franny's surname is changed from the novel. I think it was Thurston in the novel and it's changed here to Franny Avery. And I wonder whether Jane Campion, who was, the, you know, the screenwriter as well, <laughs> used the word Avery to kind of recall any of these um, kind of noir parallel Hitchcock movies like The Birds and Psycho um, and Marnie that that use bird imagery or bird-like terminology um, and every other film in general where women are like trapped and caged um, in a sense like birds um, and so that's quite interesting to me. Um, anyway, it's like terribly, terribly brutal and has, you know, several cops um, present in the film and this weird exploration and this weird like morality kind of um, uncertainty present in the in the film. So I love it. It's so worth seeing um, and maybe considering within the framework of it being a neo-noir. Cool. I've never seen that much. I'm yeah, same. That. I've got to say it's a black spot, blind spot for me. Awesome. Well, my number one... My number one needs no introduction for anyone who knows me. <laughs> it is David Lynch's 2001 film Mulholland Drive. Um, so, again, this is interesting. I mentioned before um, this idea of industrial context changing genre. This is interesting um, here in that it was originally envisioned as the beginnings of a TV series. And when that fell through, um, Lynch turned it into this film. So it has this uneven bifurcated structure that I think adds to its deeply unsettling vibe. Um, but the first segment of the film is, I think, plays along like a classic film noir um, film at its core and uses noir as a lens to focus on the corrupt 
dangerous and pathological industry that created noir in the first place. Um, Brilliant. So God, you saw that well. He's exactly. Uh, so yes, the central plot follows Naomi Watts and Laura Hanging, uh, Haring as two women whose circumstance froze together. At the start of the film, Haring's character is involved in this limo crash off the titular drive and she sort of stumbles out off the road and down into the dark lights of L.A., at night, she winds up at this apartment that's being rented by Betty, played by Naomi Watts, who is an aspiring and chipper actor who's come to town to make it big. Betty promises to help her visitor uncover her forgotten identity. So most of the film follows this mystery story, but then, of course, there's a lot of other things happening as well. Connecting all of the dots that I've sort of been talking about in this episode, you've got this noir mood the uneasy feeling of a world closing in on you. And the first few times you watch this film, if you've seen it as many times as I have, uh, you're not even sure rationally why it invokes that feeling, which I think is part of Lynch's genius. I remember, I distinctly remember the first time I watched this film being terrified and not being able to say why I was. Because it works, he works with dream logic and very, you know, interesting. And, you know, once you've seen it a thousand times, you can begin to... Um, piece together a rational argument for why it has that feeling. And because it's also about Hollywood and because the Hollywood noir segment of the film is a sort of clearly defined segment of a a broader picture, it's also reflexively about the roles that genre and Hollywood play now in our lives, um, our dreams and nightmares and desires. So... I think as David Lynch's movie demonstrates through this reflexivity, noirs are a cinematic canvas for our anxious nightmares about the totally engulfing void that one day will ultimately ensnare us all. <laughs> and if that won't convince you to watch Mulholland Drive, I don't know what will. Anyway, it's, it's, it's a wonderful film and uh, there's all this dream logic and you know creepy um, stuff and playing around with other genre stuff too. And, I mean, there's so much more than just the noir lens, but I still think it's a very key component to the film and an interesting way to maybe view the film in terms of its commentary on Hollywood as an industry. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a really good encapsulation. I, I also think that there's an aspect there which looks at the money and the sourcing and the actual the origins of cinema itself in a way, because we have the ideas, we have the people who put those ideas onto the screen, we have the guy with the producers, the whole sub yeah. story that um, it, with Justin Thoreau and the production and then Angela Bedlamenti playing, you know, a, a executive producer as well. Yeah, it just really kind of deconstructs that whole Hollywood thing. And it's also in very interesting the way the character moves almost as like, because you're talking about dream logic, but there's like this floating eye. I think it's like the first time that Lynch could actually use Steadicam, so he used it an awful lot just to have these... Oh, absolutely, yeah. Shots I mean, moving one um, technically kind of reinforces everything you were saying. Yeah, totally. One, uh, I used to give a sort of intro film studies seminar occasionally, and the thing that I would use would be the scene in Winky, the sort of classic scene in Winkies, which is a conversation that's filmed in a very standard shot reverse shot form, which ninety five percent of all conversations on film are probably shot according to this very conventional way. You have a shot of one character talking and then reverse shot of who they're talking to and then you sort of flip between these two um, angles um, uh, in, in a conversation between two people. So Lynch employs that but with this really uneasy, woozy, floating camera and so mm. it just suddenly gives this thing that we've seen millions of times before, uh, this sort of logic that we've all internalised through watching... Hollywood, it just gives it this off-kilter sensibility, which is, I think, a really small but clever distillation of his entire uh, project, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's really cool. yeah, it's really disconcerting. Yeah. Dear Editor, this is the murderer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl on the 4th of July. I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. He wants his code in the afternoon edition. Ray Smith, don't you have a cartoon to finish? The Zodiac Killer has come to San Francisco. Another letter. School children make nice targets. He gave himself a name. Um, so your number one is uh, much better than my number one, um, but it's still pretty good. Uh, it's Zodiac. 
cool. 2007 David Fincher yeah. film. I'm not going to be able to sell it as well as you just sold Mulholland Drive to me, um, <laughs> <laughs> which you didn't need to sell anyway. Um, <laughs> You're already fully, fully on board, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Too much on board, people may <laughs> Um, so yeah, you get a lot of um, neo-noir archetypes in this film without ever really directly embracing noir or having anyone in a trench coat. Um, but we have a seedy city. In this case, it's late 60s San Francisco. There's a serial killer committing lots of grisly murders around Northern California. And then they, that serial killer presumably starts admitting to um, police about these murders through coded messages and boastful letters, um, which get sent out to newspapers. So this engages a lot of the detectives at the San Francisco Police Department, including Mark Ruffalo, who turns up again hey. as Detective Toshi. Um, but what really is interesting about this is the way that it, Fincher really isn't that interested in looking at the crimes themselves. We do get to see some murders, but mainly he's more interested in the toll that this unsolved murder, which is still unsolved to this day, takes on the people who choose to investigate it. So mainly this is told through Ruffalo's character, um, uh, the cartoonist also who works with Ruffalo, played by Robert Downey Jr., Paul Avery. Avery again. Avery. What's going Avery. on here? Also two of my favourite men. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Fincher like, spares us a lot of the grisly narrative that other people may choose to show us. Yeah, so Gyllenhaal is there, Ruffalo and Downer Jr. kind of are the ways that we get through this film. Fincher fuses these different plot strands together and kind of allows the journalists and the detectives to be on pursuing their own like modes of inquiry and then as the tension, the story kind of builds its own tension, they kind of are brought together. And it's really, I don't know, really strikingly shot, I thought, by um, uh, Keith P. Cunningham. What uh, do you think of the visual sensibility? It's sort of off the wall. Yeah, it is. It's really places. It's like a, the ju- depth of field is unbelievable. I just remember there's that striking shot with the aeroplane and the people boarding the aeroplane. It's like oh yeah yeah yeah, way, yeah that's right yeah like kilometers away from the camera, but it's all in high res. Mm. It's it's smart. Yeah, there is some pretty yeah. I just well, mainly thing I remember is the color schemes. Like it's yeah. so washed out. It's so yeah. it's, it's, it's like everyone's tired before you begin. In a way, it's got this kind of lethargy to it. I'm sorry, Harrius Harry Savides uh, is the director of photography for this film. Also, David Shire, who did the Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3 score, like the theme, best theme of all time. From the 70s or 2000s? 70s. Man, oh, no, I haven't even touched that 2000s one. You know, I'll, I'll play a little bit of it now. See, brilliant. Um, so anyway, he does the score for Zodiac and that's um, it's almost kind of played down. Everything's kind of low-key. Everything's kind of at the – puts you in the mindset of the investigators because it is so attractive, this idea of being able to solve a mystery and become a hero, particularly when so many thousands of people are living in fear of this serial killer striking again. Um, so I just thought it was really nice, nice um, match of subject for Finch's like fastidious attention to detail and need to do dozens and dozens of takes to get the atmosphere exactly right. He kind of sustains it really nicely in a way that I don't think he's done in a lot of his other films. But it certainly worked for me in this one. Cool. Zodiac. Great. I'll add it to my list. I believe, sorry, I just believe that Connor Bateman, who is a film critic and video essayist from Sydney, made a video essay on the cinematography of Zodiac. Oh, good. It's worth watching. I will put a link in the show notes. Great, thanks. So can I get people's nearly but not quite or also Rans that didn't quite make the top three? I've got lots. Because Uh, I actually watched a bunch of of modern noir films. You have been on a noir... Oh, you've noticed? Yes, I have. Yeah. So some of them were terrible. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Enlighten us. There was one starring John Hawkes called Too Late. That was some of the worst sub-Tarantino things I've ever seen. But wow. it did feature this Tibetan-Australian actress who's now getting really famous in the TV show Altered Carbon. Dishan Luckman. She was really good. Very striking, unusual um, woman with, who's a great actor, actress. There was, this was one of these sort of neo-noir sub-Tarantino things in which women walk around in various states of undress with no narrative purpose. And the writing was nowhere near as clever as people think it is. So somebody will die and then someone will be talking about the price of Twinkies 30 seconds later or something. It's just ludicrous. Yeah. Anyway, but Blue Ruin was really strong. I thought that was great. And um, that was uh, a really innovative, mostly silent revenge thriller that kind of didn't get too neo-noirish, but it was certainly belonged to it. Um, also nearly included Victoria, that German film, all shot in one, uh, mm. one take. That was really, really strong. Um, Brick, really good. Mm. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, I thought did a really fun job of being a comedic noir. Hate that movie. No, I really liked it. Killing Them Softly, I thought was really good. Mendo, uh, Mendo in a noir. The man who wasn't there. Yeah. Yes, the Coen Brothers oh, movie. Yeah. 
Um, and then I just want to do a shout as a TV show, but to Mr. Robot, which can be viewed as a surveillance noir, which is this sort of interesting emerging variant on this, but in terms of state surveillance and te technological enabled um, voyeurism and all that kind of stuff. It's a really striking TV series. Totally agree. Yeah, amazing. And good, yeah, good mention of surveillance noir too, given that we're talking about neo-noirs. There, the there's a century. fantastic, I read this fantastic, like much better than you would expect story in Vice about surveillance noir, which I will force you to link to in the show notes, um, which is just really great. I read it and I was like, this is really interesting. It's an interesting, um, yeah, interesting and relevant uh, late change in the genre. Cool. Okay. Um, and the last two I just want to shout out to are um, Gemini, a movie that turned up as a secret screening in MIFF last year. I really year wanted to see that. With uh, director Aaron Katz. That was a really strange, innovative, low-budget uh, neo-noir that just also gave me an yet another way to look at LA in a slightly different way. It reminded the way you were describing Collateral was, was mm. kind of a little bit in common with what's happening here. Cool. And um, Derek C. in front says, The Place Beyond the Pines, I thought was great. Yeah, that's a good movie. I like that. And that brings us to the end of uh, episode 48 of Cultural Capital. Thank you very much for making it to the end. Why not get extra thanks from us by throwing us some thanks our way on iTunes? Please do. Bump us up the rankings. We'll give you more thankings. That would be great. Um, you can follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at The Cult Cap Pod. You can find me at Andy Ricky. I'm at Eloise Lowe Ross. And I'm at Anders Furs. We think you're great. 